Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. This episode of HPO is brought to you by Bioptimizers. If you are looking to defend yourself against harmful bacteria, then I have something for you to consider. It's called the Ultimate Immunity Protection Stack, and it was put together by our friends at Bioptimizers. Their immunity stack has three products which contain over 18 natural herbs and probiotic blends formulated to fight and eliminate bad bacteria like E. coli, salmonella, gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and repair compromised gut linings. It also helps increase serotonin, which naturally elevates your mood, performance, and cognitive function with no side effects or dependencies. Simply stir it into any beverage. So go to www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human. That's www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human and use coupon code HUMAN10 to get an extra 10% off the immunity protection stack. And make sure to also check out their Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales during the entire month of November. All right, folks, uh, welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. Uh, I'm here today with, with another guest, uh, so you're not stuck with me on a solo mission or anything like that today. And I'm excited to welcome in uh, Dr. Jonathan Edwards. And uh, um, I actually was con- connected with you a long time ago when I kind of first started incorporating a low carb, high fat diet into my own training and racing. So um, you had like a little bit of influence, I think, in terms of just answering probably some of my uh naive early comer type questions about like, you know, fueling and what, what can I, can I not get away with and that sort of stuff. Uh, and you know, if you think about, I was actually just looking at some of your stuff too, before, before going on this too, I had, uh, I had forgotten that, uh, that you actually did, I think it was your undergrad at UC Davis, if I'm not mistaken, right? Correct. Yep. So you're actually, I think our fourth UC Davis guest now at this point, we've had, uh, uh, Frank Mitloner on, um, Keith Barr, um, yourself now, and I'm trying to think we had one other UC Davis. This is episode, I think, 224, so I'm starting to lose track of everything at this point. I used to be able to remember everything off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, I think, we, I think you're number four from UC Davis. So it's, uh, so it's something about that, that, that school that just, just draws their guests into the, into the HBO podcast, I guess. <laughs> 
Yeah, mm-hmm. well, you got to remember, UC Davis is uh, is an elite physiology institution. There's uh, mm-hmm. at one time there was only three institutions like it. You know, they offer a complete physiology degree that differs from just exercise physiology. And there's not many places, I think, with Stanford, Case Western, and UC Davis that offered such um, a complete physiology degree that that you couldn't find anywhere else. So that's kind of, I think, what separates UC Davis from, you know, from some of the others. Cool. Well, I'll consider myself incredibly fortunate then to have had that number of guests coming in from from there. I think that the interesting thing, too, is like with with Professor Mitloner, you know, he's in the the agricultural side of things and like Keith Barr uh, and yourself are a little more into like the performance type side of things. And, uh, you know, Keith is more into, I think, explosive sport and muscle protein and that sort of stuff. And and you're a little more into like the endurance world. not to, yes. not to limit you, but uh, I think we've got a, we've got a, a wide range of UC Davis folks uh, in terms of their interests and uh, expertise. So um, it'll be good to kind of hear 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 some of the stuff that you've been up to over the years and uh, and some of the most most recent stuff. I know you've just just recently finished uh, kind of the the uh, a book um, called the Science of the Marathon and the Art and Variable Pace Running. Um, as, as, as a co-author, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, I wrote the, um, yeah, it's interesting, the, the science, how we came upon the name, because, um, you know, the science of the marathon and the art of variable, variable pace running. And yeah, I wrote this uh, with um, Veronica Bellat, uh, and she's a, she's a very well-known researcher, uh, French in origin, um, and it's a, it's a funny story how we got connected. I, I don't know if you know the story of the, um, the 105-year-old cyclist in France who held the record, the hour record. Anyway, it was highly publicized, this and that. And uh, one of the things that intrigued me, that was one of her athletes. And what I was most intrigued about is, you know, first a 105-year-old who could, you know, crank out, uh, you know, 20 plus K in an hour. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. But second, you know, they, they highlighted that he lost a lot of muscle mass the month before his uh, hour effort. And it was due to, he went on some kind of, not a hunger strike, but he just stopped eating animal products uh, for a month. And that's all it took for him to lose adequate muscle and, and, um, they said he would have bettered his time had he not done that. And then there was this whole big, I don't know, you know, people putting stuff out there, you know, oh, he's, you know, he was better because of this, better because of that. <laughs> I wanted to know the truth. So I emailed Dr. Balat and then I emailed her in French because I'm a fluent French speaker and that's, you know, my second language. I've lived in France almost five years of my life. Um, and I emailed her and the first thing she wrote back to me is she said, I've never in my whole life had an American write me in French. So, <laughs> so that got her started. And I said, you know, and then, and then she kind of went into like, well, it's, you know, interesting question you ask. And um, the truth is that Mr. Marchand, he's, uh, he's actually one of the people we expose in the book, the 105 year old cyclist, he, he's outlived his retirement. And <laughs> the truth is he gets 800 euros a month and he can't afford much else. 
Yeah. So he eats very basic and, you know, it, it really was kind of overblown, you know, and, uh, you know, the whole thing. And, and she said, it's just, you know, it's just the reality of life when you live that long. And, and mm -hmm. that was her main point. And, and since then, he's, you know, focused more on his protein consumption and keeping up. And as you know, you know, protein consumption is very closely tied to VO2 max. VO2 max is very closely tied to longevity and, you know, vi vitality. So anyway, that's how. And then after that, um, you know, we got to talk in. I told her I was interested in doing my PhD, uh, which I'm going to do under her now. And then she said, by the way, I have this book in French called Revolution. It's called Revolution Marathon. Anyway, in French, uh, super technical book made for like master's athlete. I mean, master researchers, super hard to understand. And then my job was to translate it and make it readable for, you know, kind of like the average marathoner. And, and in the middle of it, I go, no, we have to write a whole new book. <laughs> so anyway, I took that's why this book came about so you know so I, I took on basically the translation but within that translation a completely new book was written um and then you know with her being the you know main author the methodologies and and i kind of the one who you know who made it understandable for you know the average runner out mm -hmm. there so yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I haven't had a chance to read the book in its entirety, but I have had some time to kind of look over parts of it and, and kind of get a, an idea of kind of where, where you're targeting things and what type of, uh, uh, questions you're looking to answer or things you're looking to fill in with this stuff. So I think there's a lot of stuff that we can chat around, chat about, um, with just like performance in general, but also, uh, to a degree specifically to the marathon, which I think is just one of the more interesting endurance events because, it kind of happens to be like this intensity that is a bit of a gray area for a lot of folks where it doesn't really kind of fall neatly into like kind of a specific category uh, of intensity that you would see before the marathon got really popular. Whereas like now that the marathon is so popular now, you know, a lot of training plans and stuff, you'll actually see like, okay, this workout is marathon pace where it's like, it's taken on its own intensity, its own de definition kind of. So um, so yeah, what is, what about the marathon was made, made or what, what was it about the marathon that made that one, the interesting one to kind of focus on? Well, that's in research. I mean, you know, you got the Olympic distances, right? So, you know, you got the sprint, you know, which is Usain Bolt and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the other extreme of that is the marathon, you know, and in the Olympics, we don't focus much past the marathon, even though, you know, who knows, one day that may change, you know, with events, you know, like you do and others. Um, but I think so in research that, you know, that's where the money is, you know, sprint mm -hmm. to the marathon, you know, and middle distance um, and figuring out, um, you know, what percentage of VO2 max, for example, do you actually put out during a marathon? Uh, versus sprint versus say middle distance, you know, 1500, um, you know, and the answers are that are, of, of that are not very clear at all. Um, and actually a recent paper I just uh, was involved in with Dr. Balat and her other research uh, student, you know, that before it was believed that no amount of VO, you would never reach VO2 during a marathon. Uh, and she, she proved uh, 
in the latest research that that's not true about, you can actually get about 5% to 10% of an actual, your VO2 reaches your VO2 max, you know, as opposed to like a sprinter, believe it or not, only about 30% of that is at VO2 max. And it's the middle distance people who put over 50% of their effort at VO2 max. So, which leads into the importance of being at VO2 max and training at VO2 max. And, you know, and uh, we go a lot, you know, the book focuses a lot of that. Not enough runners, you know, focus like really training at VO2 max. They just go out there and run a certain pace and try to let their body adapt, you know, and there's so much more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for, for our listeners who maybe aren't as into endurance as, as we are, can you just give us a quick definition of like what we're referring to when we talk about VO2 max? Sure. So VO2 max is the amount of oxygen that your body consumes at a certain effort. So, and, and even more technically, it's not that it has to do with oxygen. It has to do with ATP production. So, and remember ATP ATP specifically is what allows your muscles to relax. Your your muscles automatically contract, but it takes the power of ATP to actually let your muscles decontract and reset and go again. You know, and this happens, you know, in a very fast pace. So, so we use oxygen as a measuring tool for that energy production, which is VO2, the, the ventilation or the respiratory amount of oxygen required for a certain level of aerobic output or exercise output, you know, and so there's a plateau called VO2 max. Um, and that's supposedly the highest amount of oxygen that you can consume and make ATP and, and, and you cannot go above that. Although some studies um, in my research for this book are showed that that may not be as true as we think. That's a very big generalization you learn in exercise physiology. So anyway, the, the simplest way to explain it, energy production associated with oxygen and it plateaus at a, at a certain point. Um, and that's, VO2 max. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like when we get into the topic of oxygen consumption and just like the body's ability to utilize that, that's where we maybe start getting into some of the topics that we've talked about in the past on this, this podcast, where it's like, you know, that's kind of to a degree, the driver of essentially kind of how you're going to potentially fuel something like a marathon or any endurance race for that matter is like, well, what is the what is the oxygen demands of this particular effort and like how long can you essentially kind of stretch that out from a time standpoint? Because I think like where sometimes folks get tripped up with a lot of this stuff is they'll look at something like the marathon or, or any distance race and think like, okay, if I have relative success at, uh, at that distance, why isn't other people doing the same thing I am since I found my best performance at this but when reality, when we look at like to say the marathon, I mean, you got folks finishing 
in as, as fast as around two hours. And you have folks who are finishing at, you know, four or five plus hours as well. So it almost becomes a different sport for those different kind of time segments. And since like, you know, the way I try to describe it is like, if I went out, if I thought of it more as like a time trial where like, you know, someone like uh, some of these fastest marathoners in the world, you know, they go and do like a two hour time trial just to see how far they can get. It just happens to be right around a marathon. Whereas if your average endurance athlete went out and did a two hour time trial, it's like, you know, they may, they may cover, you know, half that distance. And it's not that they aren't trying as hard. They're just, uh, you know, they're not moving as they're not producing as much output or they're not, they're not covering as much ground with the output as the other person is. So it, when you start comparing distances versus times, it gets a little more confusing for people, I think, because they wonder why, like, there's different approaches or different successes with different approaches uh, for the same distance. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, you know, the different approaches and, um, and just how people, you know, the, you know, the Kip Shoges and the, uh, how do you, Jure uh, Berlassi, um, yeah, uh-huh. you know, he's a classic, uh, such a neat guy. Um, and, you know, and you got those guys and then you have, you know, the other end of the spectrum, just a normal person who wants to finish a marathon. And, and, and that book, this book is all about that. It's for the people who are elite can get th- something out of it. But the, but the first time marathoner can gain so much out of this book as well. And that was, that, that was really the trick. Uh, uh, and, and the hardest part of this book, to be honest, was making it, you know, applicable to both populations, you know, so, so that, that leads into a good reason. So from an elite standpoint, you take somebody like Kipchoge or Gerblasse and you kind of analyze or dissect the marathon, you know, they're, if you read the research studies, you see that they vary the pace that, I mean, you know, we'll get into the constant pace thing in a little bit, but for them, even Kipchoge, in their world record uh, paces um, in a real race, which we'll get into, vary the pace. It means they start off fast, you know, they'll dip below their thresholds, they'll, they'll kind of like throw it out there and like, you know, accelerate, they'll try to hold on to the acceleration, they dip back down. You know, and all that has to do with their energy mechanisms, you know, at their VO2, you know, as you know, they come in with very big motors <laughs> and, you know, but then you go on to the other extreme, you know, say, you know, the office worker who just wants to finish the marathon. And what we propose is there's a way to finish the marathon, even for the most beginner person without having to dread the last three to five miles of a marathon, you know, it's classically say, Oh, you hit the wall at 20. And if you can somehow do mind over matter, you know, and finish the last six miles, you'll be good. And, and what we're trying to emphasize is it doesn't have to be that way. If you can vary your pace and, you know, and something you said in the past, you know, know your sensations, know, know what's an easy pace for you, know what's a medium pace for you, know what's a hard pace for you. What does it feel like to accelerate at these paces? And getting to know yourself individually is what is going to lead to your success and the possibility of finishing a marathon, uh, frankly, without, you know, uh, suffering like a VO2 max test. 
you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that's the part that confuses people who are maybe new to endurance sport is that, you know, they see all this technical jargon and all this information, all these gadgets you can use. And I think these are all great tools and help you understand kind of what's happening and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like what you essentially said is like kind of the gold standard for, for a well-trained endurance athlete is to really know their perceived effort and what they get out of that. So like the more you can learn that, the better off you're going to be able to execute a race properly by, by essentially listening to your body and kind of staying within probably a range of limitations. Um, but as you kind of highlight, there's some variability within that too. And just kind of knowing like how to understand when and why that stuff would maybe be important is, is the key to kind of finding that, that great race that you, you have inside you. Yes. So it's useful here to, to kind of go back to, you know, most people have, uh, you know, marathon training, you know, from, I don't know, you know, one, you know, time zero to 16 weeks off the couch and you're running a marathon. And usually a coach will say, okay, you know, run, uh, run three miles, you know, and then it gradually increase their mileage, but all, you know, usually at the same pace and, and rarely will they tell them, okay, let's see what the, I want you to accelerate, you know, say doing 30 thirties or, you know, some mixing it up. And, um, and so it's usually just prescribed to do a long, you know, the LSD type, type of training, you know? So it's just, you know, long distance training at the same threshold. And, and the whole goal of traditional marathon training has been that. But uh, as you very well know, it's just, it's laden with injuries. You know, it, um, it's, you know, if you read the studies, anytime you hear start hitting 80, 90 miles a week, you know, at, at a pretty good pace and threshold, um, the risk of injuries significantly go up. And, you know, and I'm interested to hear your perspective because, you know, you guys blow those mileages away sometimes during the week, you know, guys like yourself and Browning. Um, but yet, you know, you don't get in, uh, injured like the studies say you should. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you guys are employing some other techniques, you know, as, you know, diet, lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. But, but, you know, that's what the traditional studies say, you know, there's just a lot of injury associated with running, um, especially, you know, when you're coming at it from an amateur standpoint, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I, I wish I could take more credit probably for my lack of injuries, but I mean, part of it, I think, for me personally is just like my introduction to running was pretty gradual. So like, I didn't like, I didn't fall in love with it in the way that would kind of, that got me up to kind of like an aggressive training strategy early on. I like kind of played around with it most of high school and then kind of started taking it seriously by my senior year. And then, you know, I didn't even run my first year in college. I, I, I joined track and cross country my sophomore year from an educational timeline So like, I've definitely had like kind of incremental increases. So I probably spent from about, you know, age 17, 18 until, you know, probably 22, 23, just building up to being able to get to kind of that, what the research would say is like kind of the peak where the risk reward starts to accelerate quite dramatically towards risky to increase your mileage further than that. So that may have been, 
something that was helpful for me. But I think there's also like, I was a pretty early adopter into strength work and stuff like that too, which I think like when I started doing it, it was probably less clear in the literature as to how much it benefits like endurance athletes. But now I think we're starting to see more and more indication that like not just going to the gym and, you know, flailing around 10 pound dumbbells <laughs> is, is yeah. really the name of the game for even endurance athletes. And we're starting to get, get away from this mindset of like, oh, if I touch a heavy weight, all of a sudden I'm going to gain two pounds and then I'm going to run slower on my race because you know everyone knows every additional pound is going to cost you X number of seconds. And they kind of ignore the whole um, power side of the power weight ratio in that, like, you know, if you, you, you can, you can tease that in a negative direction as well. Uh, even if you think you're heading in the right direction. So yeah. uh, just a lot of kind of misinformation, I think with a lot of folks that have gotten them into a position where they're, they're not knowingly taking risks they don't need to, and they're avoiding things uh, due to misinformation that would likely help them be more sustainable. Um, and then ultimately, like, I think you're right on too with like diet and nutrition and stuff like that. It's, uh, I think, um, you know, I, I think it's like, you know, finding an approach to nutrition that jives well for you as an individual so that you are checking the boxes on the things that aren't actually in the workouts are so important, often forgotten. So like the way I like to look at it is like, I could go out and just nail a workout, have a workout of my life, but if I screw up everything after that, it's not going to do me any good because I'm not going to recover from it. I'm not going to get those, those growth benefits from it. Um, I might get injured, you know, all this other stuff that would maybe take that, that positive workout off the table for me. So for me, like when I look at nutrition, I always ask myself, well, how is this going to impact things like my energy levels outside of the running? How's it going to impact my sleep quality? How's it going to impact, um, you know, all sorts of other like markers of, of health outside of just like, you know, running, running a great workout. And I think when you can kind of make all those things work synergistically, you have a little more of a sustainable blueprint for you as a person. And, and to be honest, like when I first started ultra marathoning in uh, like in a serious way at the end of 2011, I took a look at what I was dealing with after my first like three race season. And I wasn't very convinced it was going to be something sustainable for me. So I, uh, (laughs) I, rather than just like being stubborn and kind of trying to like, like just uh, like jam it through and see what happens you know, I made changes and fortunately for me, those changes were, were pretty apparent in terms of how they positively impacted um, what I would consider my sustainability within the sport. And, you know, now, now we're 10 years later and I've only had one injury that would be considered meaningful in my opinion, which like took a race off my calendar uh, in that timeline. So, um, you know, whether that's something unique to me, my nutrition, or just the whole picture is, is, is anyone's guess, I suppose, but, uh, uh, I'm not going to complain about it. That's for certain. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. You know, and that's, I tried to, you know, and where Dr. Balat's, um, uh, experience is, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, if you go over that amount of running in a traditional sense, you're going to get injured. Um, just like you, I found that, you know, if your lifestyle, uh, and nutrition is solid, um, the injuries, they're just not there. Like the studies, often say and then um but i'll 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 add to that you know i read a ton every book i could find about the kenyans you know i'm fascinated we're all fascinated with that you know Mm -hmm. that but and one thing there's this book called running with the kenyans uh by this um author finn i won't pronounce i can't pronounce his first name but anyway he you know he's a 
typical guy. He went over there, lived with uh, the Kenyans. But one thing that I'll never forget what he said is the Kenyans, from an early age, they run barefoot. So they got that, you know, the whole running mechanics thing, uh, which I've actually restarted, you know, running barefoot a lot. Um, but they run barefoot. I mean, gosh, up to age 15 or 16 usually. And I mean, they're, they're still cooking some good miles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing, they, are, they, they avoid at all costs running on asphalt over there. They will go, they will drive miles to go find an adequate trail that's dirt and to avoid the asphalt. And that's kind of like, I don't know if it's a superstition of Kenyans, but every one of them follow that um, when they can, you know, and then they just save running on the, uh, on the asphalt uh, for the marathons. So, you know, that's, I, I think there's something to be said for that, you know, cause when I was in cross country in college, yeah, I mean, we were running, you know, marathons and stuff on the road. And, um, and I remember getting, you know, nobody ever worked with me on my, you know, my four foot stance. You know, I was like bad heel striker. I overstrided. You know, if I look back at how I used to run, I was an overstrider, heel striker. And, and, it's a, and it's a miracle I didn't kill my knees, you know, you know earlier than that, um, you know, where I look kind of look at some of the biomechanics studies um, now for, you know, like barefoot running and, you know, forefoot striking and the balance you need to achieve, you know, and, uh, and the importance of not overstriding, which I talk, we talk about in the book. Um, Yeah. All those things I think are very useful to any runner, but especially the, the, the person trying to first, you know, you know, uh, form their running style leading into a marathon or some, you know, something equivalent. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look at, I think big groups of folks that, uh, that are maybe defying the rules, so to speak from, from a sustainability standpoint. And I think part of it just is a numbers game to a degree as well, where, I mean, you see that within the collegiate systems a little bit too, where it's like, let's just say, for example, like when we go up above that training stimulus of 80, 90 miles a week, that uh, you're going to have like this, like increased rate of of injury risk. Well, if you're looking to get four or five athletes to the absolute pinnacle of what they're, what they can do, and you have a deep enough pool of athletes, you could make an argument that like the best way to produce the fastest times is to send everyone through that relatively unsustainable approach and just, you know, take your five to 10% that make it through that and say, okay, now these people, they realize maybe the marginal improvements you get by going above and beyond that, that somehow managed to avoid the injury risk. And now we have like the Kipchoge's and the, um, you know, and, and all these like uh, top and endurance athletes of the world where, where for whatever reason, they, they made it through that and, uh, and are, are blasting world records out of the books and, and that sort of stuff. So is, do you think there's something to that too, where it's like, we, we kind of forget about the group of people who get injured along the way and are no longer like in the system any longer and they go find something else to do? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then on who, and I, I think it's unfortunate, you know, the whole system in, in that way, because we just, you know, we, those people who don't make it just, you know, didn't have, you know, they didn't have the engines or the motors 
uh, early on, and we, we see this and I can best attest to this in cycling. You know, some of the best cyclists, you know, peak when they're, you know, 26, 27, 30, even 32 years old, like, you know, Bardet or Froome, you know, um, and the ones who didn't make it, who knows what it was, you know, they're, they, they didn't optimize their, you know, their aerobic capacities or they didn't mature enough or, you know, a lot of these guys I've always thought about. You know, when I was running in college, never once did I think about, oh, let's go to altitude, you know, <laughs> and increase my, you know, optimize my iron, go to altitude, and then come back and train at sea level, um, and then see what I could have done, you know? I mean, like I was in, uh, you know, running 5Ks in 15 minutes, and who, I mean, if, and that was without anything. You know, if I would have had some altitude training or just been taught to do it right from a very young age, things could have been very different. You know, I, I never would have, you know, I'm just using that as an example. But I think a lot of guys are not taken by the hand properly and really shown the ropes from a young age to give them to the ability to succeed. But behind every good athlete, somebody intervened at the right time for them to make those critical steps in their career to one, not get injured two form the right motor and, uh, and, you know, and three have success at critical times, you know, and, and the example I'll give you there is Usain Bolt. He did so many different activities when he was in his juniors that he was able to form different muscle types, um, different VO twos for different events that allowed him the success that when he did specialize in his one event, the 100 and 200 meters, he, be, he was unchallenged, you know, as the best in the world. And the big question, would have he ever gotten there had he not done all the steps in the correct manner that he did leading up to that? that I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think it does. And I think it, it sheds some light on to, I think, just what we're starting to realize with some of the younger athletes uh, now, because I think in the U.S. especially, uh, we kind of had this trend where it got to a point where sports got popular enough, the competition got steep enough, where if you wanted to be like, you know, a state podium cross-country runner or track runner, or you wanted to be you know, the captain of the football team or a starting linebacker or something like that, you couldn't be messing around with all these other sports because there's some kid who was going to go out there and they were going to think they're going to live, breathe and eat football. They're going to live, breathe or eat cross country and almost take a step ahead of where they would naturally be at at that age and kind of beat you to it to a degree is the way I kind of saw it. And, uh, I think we're starting to realize that there is like, it's like anything in life, right? There's always the, there's always a, uh, you know, unforeseen consequences to some of this, especially these one dimensional approaches. And, and the unforeseen consequences, you have these unbalanced athletes. You have someone who decided they wanted to be a pro runner at, you know, you know, grade four or something like that. Yeah. And so they put all their time and energy into that at the expense of, you know, playing soccer at the expense of, yeah. you know, some pickup basketball games at the expense of ever getting into a weight room. And, uh, you know, uh, some folks make it through that and then others don't. And I mean, I feel bad for the ones who don't because 
you know, it may have been that they just didn't have that, that kind of upbringing that you described with Usain Bolt, where he was exposed to a variety of different things that just probably made him a, a very like durable, well-rounded, like physical yep. person. And then when it became time to actually hit the point of his life where he could in theory peak, he was in a great position to do that. So um, I think we're starting to recognize that and, and, and maybe starting to turn that ship back a little bit where the message is like, you know, if you, you know, if, if you want to, you know, run cross country in the fall and then play basketball in the winter, that's totally fine. You don't have to skip cross country season to get into the pickup basketball games. Um, you know, it's a, it's an interesting conversation, I think. And I'm sure there's, there's a, there's going to be arguments for the other side as well, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I was going to say, so yeah, going the, um, the other things I wanted to, uh, you know, to bring in is like, um, the whole idea of lactate, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you know, think, uh, you know, anaerobic, you know, threshold is when your lactates, you know, four millimolars in the blood. Um, and, and one thing that, that even I got out of after doing all the research and reading her, you know, her studies is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are not bumping their lactates at threshold. I mean, it, it, their, their lactates are so high, like a, even eight to 10 millimolars and they're still not at max. So I guess the, the thing is, is, you know, you get all these coaches out there, oh, let's test your lactates. And, you know, once you hit four, we know that's your lactate threshold. You know, that has to, that's the start of your anaerobic threshold. Um, and we can go back and define that stuff. But uh, what Dr. Balat's, you know, and, and mine's big point is, is that it's, it's not so simple as that. Like your, your, your lactate or anybody else's could be eight at your threshold. And, and we, and she sees that in, in her studies day in and day out. And she, she says, get away from this idea that there's a, you know, there's a aerobic with oxygen or an anaerobic without oxygen um, mechanisms to your running. It's all a mixed picture. It's fair. It's and in fact, it's so mixed that, you know, everybody probably has it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and so and and the other thing she she emphasizes on the lactate stuff, you you have to realize all this, these studies came from treadmills, Mm -hmm. not not real time running. Like the lactates you measure on a threshold are going to have little to do with what you do on a track in a real race situation. You know, so what's really cool about her studies is she actually has taken the extra steps and now the equipment has evolved where she has portable VO2 sensors on the runners outside. And that's where she takes her VO2 measurements from. Not, not, not from some big lab in a treadmill, you know, like, uh, like I learned at UC Davis years ago, you know, I mean, these are like $45,000 apparatus to, to measure some of these VO2s outside in the, in the real world, she calls it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, that's, you know, that's something I hope people get out of this discussion is that, you know, 
especially kind of for the more advanced endurance athletes, you know, that don't hang your hat on your lactate testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those things where it's almost like it's a tool that can maybe shed some light on some stuff for us. But if it's not, if it's not with a group of other data points, it, it also loses its value pretty fast in the sense that like, for me, when I'm coaching folks, I'm actually at this point a little more inclined just to know like, well, where are you at right now in terms of like what you could cover in say 60 minutes with a, with a, a an all out intensity effort. And then, and it doesn't have to be that extreme, but uh, for, for an example, like, and then we're going to look for relative improvements within that. So like, just to, to, to know that we're heading in the right direction. So like if I'm seeing, someone increase the distance traveled in a given time frame, then we, we know we're making efficiency gains there. Um, we're moving in the right direction. And then it's just kind of picking what we're, what we're trying to measure. And I think sometimes like that, the, the answer to what can be, well, what race are you doing? Like how, how far yeah. along are you going to run for is in like, so what's our kind of like more, our more critical data point there, or the one we're going to end up focusing on the most when we're starting to peak for, for whatever race it is you're doing. So like, um, I think we've seen some movement with that too, but even, even that has its limitations as well. But, uh, I want to, I want to jump back a bit to what, when you were talking about just kind of the, the millimoles where, you know, yeah, traditionally like four millimoles is that point where like that lactic threshold is, is hit in the lab. And then they, they look at that as like, okay, that's that data point we're looking for. But if, if four is a generalization we can see extremes up to eight, what does that mean for the person with eight? Like, what do they do differently, if anything, ah. if they would go to the lab and find out, hey, I'm off the charts, what do I need to do differently in order to best prepare myself versus the person who's going to do the standard four? So first, you got to know, most people think lactate's uh, a bad thing. And in fact, it's a very high premium energy fuel. The energy you gain from lactate in, in terms of ATP production is, is so important. That's kind of what differentiates, you know, the guys with big motors and who can do some amazing things, you know, in, 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 in any endurance point sport um, is your ability to use lactate as a fuel, you know, and you got to remember the heart prefers lactate over any other fuel. It, it will use lactate and go through pyruvate to make ATP before it uses um, a molecule of glucose. So that being said, how you produce lactate and the enzymes you've upregulated to actually metabolize that lactate into energy, um, and it gets more complex than that, but you know, the, the basics are that. How, how fast do you make lactate and then use it for a fuel? And the better you get at that, the, the, the higher your reserve energy, so to speak, or your power reserve will be. And so guys like, you know, yourself, uh, Kipchoge, um, you know, Bardet, you guys have a tremendous ability to, to use your lactate as fuel, therefore sparing, you know, glycogen. Um, you have a tremendous ability to use creatinine phosphate which most people don't uh, remember that it's independent of temperature. You know, lactate and, and uh, 
glucose are very dependent on temperature. But anyway, that being said, lactate is, should be, you should want lactate. You want to be able to produce lactate and use lactate because that's what's going to, that's what's going to increase your performance and, and, you know, and, and, and make you a great endurance athlete. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's, I, I think traditionally that is so underemphasized, um, you know, in the, especially in America here, I, I'm not so sure about Europe. It might be different, but uh, that's my experience anyway. And I might be yours growing up too. This episode of the HPO podcast is sponsored by Swanson Health. Swanson Health has been producing quality vitamins, supplements, food and beverage products, healthy home products, and self-care products for over 50 years from the heart of America. Swanson complies with both FDA and FTC standards, ensuring that consumers can trust the label information and safety of all their products. They are committed to purity and potency from raw ingredients to the final product. They rigorously test their products internally and externally for purity and potency. They will ship orders all over the United States, Canada, and even internationally. I have been picking a few of their products that fit into my nutritional strategy, which have included their Pure Collagen Protein for Healthy Joints, Bone Broth Collagen Natural Flavor, which is sourced from bovine bones and no artificial colors or flavors, Mellow Mag to help defend against stress, and Omega Lemon Flavor from Molecular Distilled Fish Oil. If you want to try out any of Swanson Health's great products for yourself, use code HUMAN20, that's H-U-M-A-N-2-0, for 20% off all their products and free shipping on orders of $50 plus on swanson.com. That's S-W-A-N-S-O-N dot C-O-M. Links and codes can also be found in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I remember when uh, uh, when I first got into running, like in high school and stuff like that, where you know that we would talk about we you'd finish an interval, like oh my legs are burning, and you know like yeah, you know the message is well, you still get that lactic acid out of there. And it's like, ah, lactic, <laughs> lactic acid. That's, so I, I go, I go. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves. There is no such thing as lactic acid. Uh -huh. Yeah, you are. If you if you are producing lactic acid, you are clinically dead. Yeah. You have to have a you got to have a pH of like six point two or something like that to actually make lactic acid, and life is not sustainable. You know, when I'm in the uh, ICU taking care of patients and their lactate goes, you know, below, uh, if it gets below six eight or six five, I mean, there's no saving that patient. You know, mm -hmm. it's basically, it's a, it's a, you're, that's the end of the road. So anyway, yeah, it's lactate. And then the acid, as you know, as you well know, is it's the intracellular acidosis that's being produced, you know, by other factors such as lactate metabolism, ATP production, pyruvate, the Cori cycle, gluconeogenesis. you know, there's so many factors producing acids inside of the cell. Mm -hmm. And that lactic acid has nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that stuff gets skewed or just mis misunderstood by, by the, the early adopters and, and certainly the, the, the young <laughs> school runners. But right. um, uh, just to, to emphasize that point too. So like if, um, if you have someone who is pushing up much above that four millimoles, does that, 
so, so essentially they just have more high octane fuel available to them is kind of the way that maybe you look at that from a simplistic standpoint. Sure. Yep. You have, um, more fuel to do more things with. And so you're, you know, you could be, I don't know, running a, your lactate metabolism at a 6:30 pace, you know, is probably, you know, way better than the lactate metabolism of somebody, you know, who, who doesn't run, run quite as fast as you. So they may be, you know, that it may be a 7:30 or an eight minute pace to where they're actually recycling the lactate, um, you know, and, and you always hear, you know, oh, this athlete just has a big engine. Well, that's part of the reason. You know, when you look at these big cyclists, um, it, it'll go on to a subject that's very pertinent to you. Um, it's one of the reasons people who have big motors, you know, and most of us are born, you know, with, with a very big engine, you know, the ability to create a lot of energy to, to produce a big exercise output, you know, just, it's true. So people are created differently. And, um, so your ability, um, and you may be born with different lactate enzymes to do that. Um, and, and but you can also develop them through certain types of exercise, which we emphasize, you know, in the books. And one way to do that is through acceleration training. Uh, also fasted runs, um, you know, and then we're finding out lactate metabolisms are much different on a, say, you know, a lower carb diet versus a higher carb diet. Uh, you know, there's big differences in lactate metabolisms between the two, but certainly there are. Um, and we're still finding out the differences in those. Um, and then to find, to, to really drive home the point, um, you know, people who in, in, you know, in your, your sport who run a lot, you know, lower carb, you know, you're using more fatty acids for energy. Well, um, you know, I think as you've talked about before, you know, you, there's a little bit higher oxygen demand when you, you know, when you're in say running in ketosis than say when you're running using your glycogen. Um, so guys with bigger engines, can use their, their, their lactate and their fatty acids more efficiently than somebody who doesn't have such a big motor. You, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're able to make up for that increased oxygen demand that you're, when you're using fats as a fuel um, versus, you know, not being as good as using fats for a fuel and then throw that in with the lactate and that explains some of the differences of why some endurance athletes have so-called big motors and some don't, I, you know, it's, it, it really gets into the weeds, but that's, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's the easiest way to think about it for, you know, you know, of, of why people can really just, you know, have fantastic, you know, athletic performances. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think like the question or the follow-up question I'd have with that, where it would be like, let's say like um, you have someone who has that huge engine, uh, you know, record like uh, VO2 max type numbers and things like that. And um, would they still benefit relative to their capabilities to, for, for specific intensities, uh, say the marathon, because it was someone with that big of a, an engine, is it going to be, you know, 
world-class marathoner if they put the energy into getting, getting to it. And uh, would they still benefit from reducing that oxygen demand via like a moderate to higher carbohydrate diet then, even though like technically comparatively to someone with a smaller engine, they could get away with more? Yeah, it, I don't, um, it, marathoning is a good example. Um, if I understand the question correctly, you know, that little bit of, it's, it's for sure, they use fats, you know, fatty acids, uh, you know, at the higher oxygen cost uh, more efficiently, but they have a bigger reserve to play with. So, I mean, Kipchoge running 430, you know, he, what does he run, 434s to finish mm -hmm. a marathon in two hours? You know, he, he goes out there and runs 445s and 455s and – you know, he, he's not, he's not tapping into his full potential. Mm -hmm. So he, he, his, what we call his power reserve is, is, is very big, meaning, you know, he might be running, I don't know, 15 meters, uh, 15 mile, you know, 15 miles an hour and at some threshold, but he's capable of running, you know, he's capable of increasing his pace up to almost 30 or I mean, I should say, uh, and it's hard to, in kilometers an hour, I believe it's uh, 30 meters per second or something like that. But anyway, doubling, doubling the speed, he, he's able to double his speed and, and therefore he has a big power reserve. So the whole concept of power reserve is what's special about these people with big, with big engines. It's, it, it's a, it's a difficult topic and, yeah, to, to understand. But one thing to understand is that acceleration training builds that way better than long, slow distance running, for example. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it possible for you to give us a relatively simple definition of power reserve? Yes. So let's say, you know, um, a typical marathon pace, I don't know, is, um, yeah, in the book, in, in the book, we go into it and it's that difference between that, that pace you run for a marathon and the pace you're able to top out at. So, you know, how close, <clears throat> you know, whatever percentage of, of your VO2 max is. So that velocity, let's say that velocity is 50% of your VO2 max that velocity at your VO2 max is say 50% and you're able to increase your pace up to 90% of your VO2 max. Some people may only be able to go, you know, or I should say 110% or 120% and sustain that pace. And then, you know, and the, the, the guys who really do it well can hold those paces for, you know, you know, they can say, okay, I'm going to click off a 440 pace now for two kilometers. Having the ability to do that is because you have such a big power reserve, you know, where somebody's, you know, you know, you probably, you, pro you probably can go out and click off a five minute pace, but to say, okay, I'm going to go click off, you know, a five ish pace or even better for, X amount of time, 
is dependent on your power reserve. And the aerobic and the energies that play into your power reserve are the lactate, the creatinine phosphate, you know, almost like a hybrid engine. Basically, you know, your hybrid engine, um, you know, the big fuel maker is glycogen and glucose, but then the lactate and creatinine play into it. Um, and how they play into those energies is in a nutshell, what your power reserve is. So it's, it's, you know, the speed you can go over, say your sub threshold pace and hold it. And guys who win marathons have a huge power reserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the way, the way that, that I've historically always understood it was like, the one of the reasons why some of these guys and gals are running such fast marathons relative to everyone else is they can push up or essentially maybe the way to think about it is the gap between um, their marathon pace and where they're actually going above their threshold is so tight that they're basically up against it. Whereas like you take your average person and you send them out to run like threshold pace and they'll, they'll be pretty fortunate probably to go past an hour. So, you know, that's right. only going to get you so far in a, in a race that's 26.2 miles, but then you get to a point where all these things line up where, you know, you're a world-class athlete on top of like the proper training that's going to get you to that point where there's a very small um, variance between your marathon effort and your, your, your threshold, then it's like, you know, you've gotten to that point where you can, you just got a lot more, you got, well, what you said, essentially, you have a lot more reserve to play around with. So you can, you can tease those, those, those levels more. So if I'm understanding what you're saying too, that lactate role is going to be a huge determiner in, in that, because it, it's the, the, the second arm of the hybrid. Um, yeah. if, so if I'm right about that, let's hop into like, some of the stuff that you've seen from a training stimulus, which I think you've touched on a bit already, but um, from a training stimulus, as well as like maybe a nutritional approach that's going to arm you with uh, the most potential in terms of uh, using that, using that premium fuel source to blend in with, with, uh, with uh, the other substrates. Sure. So yeah, I'll give, I guess I'll start, start off with um, acceleration training. So acceleration training falls, you know, it's, it's, it's one of her areas of big, of her research and by, you know, one of her, if you know of a running coach named uh, Rick Lovett, mm -hmm. so he's a Portland guy. So he, um, he wrote one of the reviews for the book and, and I, I just kind of reached out to him said, Hey, you know, would you, you know, Dr. Balat and I are doing this book. And he immediately said, yes, I use, cause I, I, he uses a lot of her training methods. Um, and basically, you know, by doing, uh, some, some of the exercises in the back of the book, I'll go over some of them. Like you got your 30 thirties version one and version two. So, and, you know, and each of these, each of these touch a different area of, of like, uh, tolerance to acidosis. Um, you know, we call them cardio sessions, uh, force speed perception exercises, you know, like, uh, so like the perception exercises, you go out without a watch, 
And you got to know very well what your easy pace is, your medium pace is, and your hard pace and your sprint pace. And your, your goal is to, you know, say do 10 minutes of easy and then accelerate into a medium pace for three minutes and then uh, hold a hard pace and then sprint it out, you know, and then, and then hold back to a medium pace and then go back to an easy pace and then repeat, you know, those kind of things. And one of the biggest things that she taught me is that it, it's kind of like, you know, after you do a sprint, you try to hold on to a pace after the sprint. That's kind of like the eccentric load of an aerobic exercise. So, you know, the best way to explain eccentric is like walking downstairs, right? Your muscles, mm -hmm. you're just, your muscles are trying to hold yourself from falling down the stairs. So in the same way, you're trying to hold your VO2 from falling too fast. That period right there are the things that increase your lactate metabolisms and other energy systems that when you work on those specific types of exercises, you, you know, her studies and other people's studies show that you can, uh, you can increase that part of the hybrid engine specifically. And, 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 and again, it gets into the weeds. Um, and then I'll go into, you know, her 30 thirties. If you look up, you know, if you, if you look up her 30 thirties on the internet, a lot of people use them, you know? Um, so, you know, that exercise involves, you know, 30 second surgeon surges at your maximal aerobic speed, which I'm going to define here in a sec, but basically that's your VVO2 max. So once you know your, your velocity at VO2 max, you surge that for 30 seconds and then you 30 second jog recovery. And then you do that for as many times as you can. So that's, that's kind of like the level one, you know, a guy like yourself, we would prescribe like, eh, all right, we want you to go to V to your, that maximal aerobic speed for about a, for one minute. And then we want you to go back down to tempo speed, which is basically your medium pace or 40% of maximal aerobic um, speed. And we want you to be able to do 10 minutes of this and then repeat it a couple times. And then most people can get through two to three sets, you know, on the elite ap athlete spectrum. But those are some of the kind of exercises, you know, that she's come up with. And you can see these on, you know, in the book, you can go to billatraining.com and they're there. Um, and then, uh, you know, and that's, those are just some of the differences in, in, in workouts that you will see. And, and the big thing is it takes less time to get to the same amount of fitness using this kind of acceleration approach than it does long, slow distance running. So, and then, um, so go ahead with what, and then, uh, and at one point I want to explain how you can actually discover your maximal aerobic speed or your velocity at VO2 max, um, very easily so she developed that as well mm -hmm. yeah no this is this is great i think so the interesting thing that you mentioned too is like i mean this answers a question i think a lot of people have especially my friends in the midwest who are preparing for mountain ultra marathons out west or out east and they just don't have access to the downhill running that's going to be required on race day and it sounds like from what you're saying is they can almost 
do a little bit of a double dip. And by doing like these 30 by 30 type workouts, they're not only mimicking that breaking that you're essentially doing going downstairs or running down a steep hill by emphasizing the deacceleration standpoint of that sprint. Uh, they're, they're going to, they're going to practice that eccentric contraction. That's going to save their legs on the downhill running on that future race, but they're also going to improve their, their body's ability to produce lactate, uh, as a metabolite to produce and use and use. Okay. So, um, one quick follow up question with that before we kind of keep going, but, uh, what would you say, like, is there a timing preference with that? So like for me, what I've leaned on, not entirely, but my programming for my own training and racing. And then with folks I'm working with a lot of times, since I'm working with some of these extreme distances, we're looking at kind of doing things that are very specific to race day as we get closer to it. Um, almost a little bit more of a, like a, a, uni, like a, like a, we're, instead of blending a lot, we're kind of focusing on the different systems during different phases, starting from least specific, moving towards most specific. So by, by the way that a 30 by 30 workout would look on paper, that would be something I would typically prescribe earlier in a training plan. Um, but based on what you've told me, it sounds like there's maybe some implicate or some, some reasoning to maybe provide that type of a training stimulus throughout the plan uh, and certainly as you're closer to the race, especially if you want to improve that eccentric contraction uh, side of things and you don't have access to the downhill running and then certainly for the lactate side of things. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. And, you know, and then everything's individual, you know, mm-hmm. how much, how many miles you need, you know, Dr. Balat's study is trying to show that you don't need as many miles to reach the same uh, metabolic and aerobic capabilities to complete, say, a marathon, you know, than, than you do, you know, just regular out there, constant pace running. You know, variable pace running is, ex- you know, exactly the opposite of constant pace running. You know, it involves accelerations, you know, changing it up, putting in, you know, acceleration phases, putting in, you know, deceleration or eccentric phases um and and you would definitely throw these in early in the um you know early in the program to building up to a marathon you know for certain um the the other thing you have to throw in early though is like how do you how how do you even know your your maximal aerobic speed or your vvo2 max you know how can you discover that and I was blown away at how easy it is not to have to do a full blown VO2 max test. You know, I'm sure you've done them. I've done them. Um, then in French, they call them the little corridors of death. <laughs> <laughs> and basically she has a thing called the rabbit test and the rabbit test is basically you going out, you know, with a, a bit of a warm up takes about 30 minutes. You for 10 minutes, you run easy. And then you basically very slow jog for one minute. And then you, you sprint 10 seconds, very slow jog for one minute. Then you go back out, run a medium pace, five minutes. At the end of that, very slow jog for one minute. Then you go back out and run three minutes of a hard, what we call a hard pace. 
slow down for one minute, sprint for 30 seconds, slow down for one minute, and then go out and run in 10 minutes of an easy pace, all while recording your GPS distance along with your heart rate. And that's all it takes to, to calculate your VO2 max. And, and that the, the VO2 max calculated from that exercise, which is not difficult to do. I mean, the hardest part is eight minutes of medium and hard paced running. Um, it is within two, 2.5 to 5% of a VO2 max you would measure in the lab on a treadmill, you know? So mm -hmm. that's how you discover, you know, your, what's called your MAS or your maximal aerobic speed. And the beauty of it, because you're doing this early, you're, you're not afraid to go out and test your VO2 max like every two weeks. Mm -hmm. So you can actually get a great measure of what your maximal aerobic speed is like way more often and you actually look forward to it, you know, versus going to do a full out, you know, VO2 max test, which I mean, can be mind crushing as, you know, as you know, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I mean, I, the first one I did, I passed out on a bicycle. I did, I hit the floor, um, you know, so, it, and, and uh, so I think that's a, that's a, that's a very, very important thing to emphasize. You know, if you learn to, to test your MAS, more often than not, you'll, you'll have a way better program and your coach can do way more things with you than if you just do a VO2 max test, you know, along with lactate every month or two, or, mm -hmm. you know, most people get it done once and that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is that how like some of these new like wearable techs are estimating VO2 max? Are they using like that sort of an algorithm then? I don't think so. Um, no? no, I think this is based on heart rate, statistical heart rate data. Okay. Um, yeah, no, this is like, so what on the, you go to, so basically how I do it, you just go to, you, you can, there's programs to do it yourself, but she, she has a program where she developed this thing called the rabbit test. And basically you run the rabbit test that I just explained. You, you get your data, you know, on your Garmin connect or whatever, and then you plug that into our website. Um, and there's a place to plug it in there. And I don't know if you have to be a member or what, but, and basically it spits out your VO2 max and it spits out the, the speed at which your VO2 max is, um, which, you know, and that's, and I think that's a very important starting point. And then, uh, which, which actually, um, just briefly, I want to lead. Most people think VO2 max is a fixed speed and it's not, you have a whole range of VO2 max speeds. And VVO2 max or maximal aerobic speed is only defined as that speed where you very first hit VO2 max. So Usain Bolt again is the best example. He may hit his VO2 max at, you know, I don't know, at the 22 meters per second, but his, but he still has the ability to, to run faster at the same VO2 max you know, at whatever, 30. So you see what I'm saying? There's a, mm -hmm. it's important to understand there's a big range of where your VO2 max lies and how you, and how you construct a training program based on those speeds can make 
a ton of difference in an athlete's progression. Mm -hmm. So would you be, when you do a test like that and you discover your speed um, within that framework, are you doing these? So then you're going to do these tests again throughout the program to see if there's relative improvements based on that first one. Absolutely. And then, you know, like I said, the power of it is just so easy and you actually look forward to doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think like one thing I talk about just from a, like, I think like with a lot of this stuff, like consistency is such a big piece to the puzzle, especially when you get into races that are less studied. And um, one thing I really like about setups, like you described is they kind of like, they build in these benchmarks along the way. So you know, if I'm doing this type of a structure and we go out and we do a test like that, say early on, rather than saying, okay, the, the carrot at the end of this, all this time and energy you're going to spend is, you know, this race 16 weeks, 24 weeks down the road, that might be less motivating the longer we, we get into things, you know, as it kind of wanes a little bit. Um, but when you have like these little, these little tests that give you an update of your progress, then, uh, not only can you decide if you're heading in the right direction from a training implementation standpoint, but uh, you can also have like uh, benchmarks that are giving little rewards along the way too. Because if you see that improvement, you're like, okay, this time and energy I'm spending is paying off. I'm moving in the right direction. And sometimes it just takes that little bit of, uh, of encouragement from something like that to make you excited about the next phase of training. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what it is. It's the excitement about the consistency and it's that excitement and consistency that you become addicted to. And, you know, and that, and that, that, that excitement about being better is what keeps you going and makes you a great athlete, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and that's, and that's something I, I think that's very different than some of the more traditional marathon training programs. I, I mean, uh, a lot of people get into them, but at some point you, you, you become almost afraid of it. You know, Oh my gosh, I got to go do 12 miles this weekend or a half marathon. And you're just like, I've never done that. You know? And, and I think there's a big difference between these two modes of, of, uh, of coaching, you know, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting stuff. Um, one other thing too, uh, if we want to chat about just the nutritional component of the lactate usage, uh, do you want to, you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Like, what is there, what have you seen anyhow? Uh, can you move the needle on that based on what you eat? Maybe is a simple way to, <laughs> the way to ask that question. I, I guess it's easiest to start with the beginner marathoner, you know, mm-hmm. like the, uh, the, the big mystery out there, and it's not a mystery, as you know, is well, why do most people gain weight when they train for a marathon? I mean, you're doing, you know, you're, a, a marathon only uses, what, 3,000 calories or less? You know, mm-hmm. but, but the, the fact is most people who go out there and run a marathon want to do it, you know, to lose weight and this and that. Um, and, and most people wind up gaining weight, and, you know. And all she have to do is just learn how to train fasted, um, you know, and not, you know, not eat and not be, you know, don't take in gels or protein shakes. You know, I might, I don't know about your rule, but I mean, if, if, if you train under two hours, 
you have no business taking in any kind of protein shake or, or even kind of, you might need a gel for your mind, you know, or some kind of glucose or something, but that's it, you know, strategic carb intake. Um, and so I drive that home early and people I help, um, especially beginners going, you know, you, you just wait for your real meal, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then when it comes to your real meal, you know, balance it out, balance it out with good proteins, good fats, you know, you know, the normal stuff, you know, that, that most people eat and you have no business like, uh, eating, you know, like, I don't know, processed pasta, um, things like that. It's just where traditionally in marathon culture, it's ingrained. Oh, you need to eat, you know, pasta after this, you need to eat potatoes, you need to eat, you know, any carb source, you can absolutely get your hands on and eat it until you're full. And that's just so far from the truth. You know, you, you got to eat nutrient rich foods that are going to give you the vitamins and the iron, you know, liver and, you know, you know, meats and good animal products with, you know, a, you know, a balance of whatever else you eat, you know, and, and mm-hmm. everybody's different. You know, the one thing I've learned, and I'm sure you've learned, there's no one individual way for everybody to eat. And some people do fantastic on a low carb, animal rich, high, high nutrient diet. And other people do fantastic on, you know, pretty high carbs, you know, whatever traditional, but you know, one thing that's inarguable though, is staying off processed foods, mm-hmm. you know? So 90% of it is just getting the processed food. So that's a long answer to, okay, how are you going to increase your energy metabolisms of your hybrid engine using nutrition? And, you know, certainly increasing your ability to use fat as your fuel at certain thresholds saves your glycogen, but also, you know, builds your, you know, your, your abilities to, to use lactate and creatine as fuel. So it's, and then the, uh, the other thing is, um, it, it just, it really goes into the weeds. And then the other thing we go into the book is the, this, this burning, this fat burning light box max, um, in theory, light box max, which is basically the threshold you need to burn the most fat. It's great in theory. But in, but in real practice, it, it doesn't pan out, you know, and, it, you know, as you know, there is no one way of eating or training that, that in, you know, helps you lose the most weight or that kind of thing. Um, and, and usually it just comes down to learning to, you know, train fasted um, and, and, and not over consuming foods throughout your running journey or, you know, or cycling journey, whatever it may be. I know it, it's such a, it, it, there's no easy answer, you know, that that's short, uh, you know, that you can use for this to, to, to bring home this point, you know, to especially new runners. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and the, the one thing that like, I think there's like with a lot of this stuff too, you essentially, you have a give and take, right? So like there's uh, you know, if you go way too far to the extreme of either end of the spectrum, you could find yourself pulling a, you know, an option off the table for you. 
So like, you know, we, you could see that with like, you know, taking carbohydrates out altogether. Um, are there folks who are going to benefit from that? Probably. And they're probably going to be folks who just don't need that tool on a regular basis or at all. And kind of the same thing on the other side where like, if you start like ramping up your, your carbohydrate intake to the degree where you're kind of in an extreme high carbohydrate diet, very low fat, uh, probably low protein as well at that point, you're, you're putting yourself in this kind of position where you're leaning so heavily on that fast acting fuel source that, you know, you're the way, the way uh, um, Dr. Mike Nelson explained it on, on the previous podcast that we recorded with him. He's like, that'd be like taking your car out into the driveway and just revving the engine in neutral. It's like, if you want to be burning that high octane fuel at rest, then yeah, eat 80% of your diet from carbohydrate, but yeah. you don't, you don't know what the, the negative ramifications from doing that are. So like, even if you think like that is your ticket to optimal performance, you should still be aware of the risks with that. And I think the way he explained it was like one of the big risks there is you're leaning on an incredibly small fuel tank to yeah. essentially power everything from rest to high activity and or high intensity. And when you do that, you set yourself up to have so many peaks and valleys, or if you get injured, all of a sudden you're in this position where your, your body's uh, fuel substrates are set up to prioritize that fast acting fuel source at even low intensities. And now you find yourself in this situation where you can't even do anything other than a low intensity active activity. And you've essentially sabotaged your fat oxidation potential. Uh, so you have, a, you could have a very painful transition to try to earn that back when you're injured or when you're not training and stuff like that, or, or maybe you retire and you're never going to train the way you did before. And now all of a sudden you have to like overhaul your diet um, because right. of that. And it's just like, that's how much relative risk do you want to take with stuff like that is I guess maybe yeah. the, the, my, question. yeah. And my, my experience with, and then we'll go two things on there. The, you know, and then you look at the elite runners, you know, marathoners, I should say, um, you know, they, the Kenyans eat mostly what Ugali and it's a higher, you know, 75 carbohydrate mm -hmm. percentage, um, you know, diet, but the, the things you don't, at least my, in my readings, they, they don't eat a lot of processed junk, mm -hmm. you know, it's just not in their nature. And, you know, they just eat stuff that's homemade and, you know, off of the, off of the farm and, you know, not a lot of package and box stuff, you know, uh, that, that, that's through my studies anyway. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, so at that, but you know, at that level, and then you see how skinny they are. Those guys power to weight ratios are off the charts. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, Kipchoge is the, I mean, that guy's, he's as skinny as like, you know, the cyclists, you know, and then we go into the health aspects of those guys. You know, I, I've been up close to Chris Room and I've ridden with him and Bardet and, you know, all those guys you get next to them. I mean, their vertebrae are showing their ribs are showing. I mean, they're, you know, I, I, I was so skinny in my cross country days that um, the school counselor sought me out personally and tried to inter intervene thinking that I was on drugs. Mm. It was so, it was funny. She really <laughs> did. She thought I was a hundred percent taking drugs and that's why I was so skinny, you know, <laughs> But, you know, to, to achieve those kind of speeds, you know, to be able to go that fast in a marathon or climb that fast on a, you know, on the Alpe d'Huez, 
your power to weight ratio has to be X, mm -hmm. right? And that's how they produce such these, you know, these fast speeds and these huge power reserves. And, um, but, but anyway, going back to the diet, a, a lot of them don't eat as much as you would think for the amount they train. Oh, for sure. Like when you, yeah, you, you know? look at that, you look at that, a lot of those guys are probably eating less than your, yeah. like your average marathoner is, uh, certainly stateside. But uh, yeah, I mean, you look at some of the reports, it's like, you know, some of these, you get elite marathon training programs being done on like 2,700, maybe 3,000 calories a day. And right. it's like, well, I can't remember yeah. what the most recent estimates are from just the average American. I think it's 2,400 or something like that, maybe up to 2,700. So yeah. it's like they're basically eating just a, you know, an extra sandwich above what the average American is eating. And then they're, you know, piling 80 to a hundred mile training weeks on top of it. It's, it's, you, 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 you kind of answered the question, I think by just like explaining that because you, you have yourself in this situation where, yeah, they're burning a very, very like, fast acting fuel source as kind of their primary source of fuel, but they're also not exceeding. They're probably under eating in most cases to the degree where it's probably got negative health consequences down the road for them. Yeah. Um, even if it means they're going to, you know, be a world <laughs> a world champion marathon runner or something like that. But um, it, it's a, it's kind of, and I'm sure, I'm sure that once they break through, like um, I doubt, I, I bet they're, they're starting to fine tune that a little bit better, but when they're coming like right out of, uh, right out of some of the training camps where they're first getting discovered, you know, a lot of those guys are, are eating very little relative to what you'd probably expect. Like you're like in a, I can tell you in a professional cyclist, their weight matters so much. I've seen guys come off six hour training rides. Um, and, and I mean, I'm telling you, eat a little thing of rice and some eggs and they're done. Mm -hmm. um, but, but which goes into the point, you know, the injuries get high, you know, with running higher mileage. So, you know, what you put in your body, like the, the nutrient dense density, you know, and the, 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 the high quality food you put in your body, that's where it's going to make the differences, you know, how, how your collagen support, your cartilage, how healthy is your fascia, you know, all that kind of stuff. It totally goes along with, you know what you put in your body and where you're getting it from, mm -hmm. you know? And so if you're just eating processed pasta, eh, you're, you're probably going to get more injury than the guy who, you know, than the runner who's eating, you know, some liver or, you know, you know, or high, high dense, uh, you know, farm to table foods or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. or getting, or like Keith Barr says, you know, they're not getting the amount of protein, they need to support their, their, their cartilage joint structures and therefore the injuries come, you know, it's all, it, so, you know, I think it all ties in and, and when you just, you know, eat a nutrient poor diet and try to pile on miles on top of it, you know, there's only one thing that's going to happen, you know, it's an injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting and, uh, uh, kind of fun to un unpack the variants and some of that stuff, but um, I don't want to keep you too, too long uh, with, uh, with this. I think we've been going for about an hour and a half, but uh, yeah. um, if you want to share with the listeners, like where they can find you, like when is the book coming out and where can they find it and that sort of stuff, 
definitely share that with us. And I'll also link that stuff in the show notes. And um, I have a feeling we're going to have to have you back on down the road. Cause I think we just kind of scratched the surface of a lot of this stuff. I think it could be fun. We <laughs> probably, could, as you said, we probably could have taken any one of these topics and just dove into just that. And then uh, <laughs> spent an hour, hour and a half doing it. But yeah, I think and then next time I've talked to Dr. Balad about it and you know, her, I don't, I'll be honest, I've never spoken English with her, ever. Mm-hmm. I think her English is pretty good, uh, but so we can get her on, you know, in, maybe in the future, or you could just have her on, and, you know, it'd be like having a legend, you know, um, you know, a legend, you know, on, in your, uh, she, she's really so knowledgeable. So anyway, yeah, the book open is called, invitation for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll, uh, so we'll get that going. Um, and then, yeah, I just wanted, so the book, you know, The Science of the Marathon and the Art of Variable Pace Running, it's on Amazon. Uh, it's on her website at billatraining.com. It's on, uh, I, I put it on my website, docedwardsfitness.com. Um, and it's, uh, there's some Barnes and Nobles is picking it up, I believe. Um, so it can all be found through there. Um, and any, I, and I'm, you can reach me at, uh, through my website, it's just doc Edwards fitness at Gmail. Um, and you know, that's, uh, yeah, it's pretty easy. And then I'm on, I do a little bit of social media, but, uh, I'll be honest. I'm not, you know, I'm not the, the best when it comes to that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you've got too many studies to comb through. You can't be messing yeah. around with that. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, so w- one thing, one last thing I would like to, um, you know, to go through is the, uh, is the five, uh, if somebody can wrap their head around, uh, five golden rules for marathon success. And I'll be brief here, uh, that she describes mm-hmm. the start. Don't resist the euphoria of the start. You know, it's everything you've worked for take it in and go along with that fast start because you're using your premium fuels while your aerobic engine is fresh. Your muscles are fresh. The second thing, get into your zone. Don't be afraid to let yourself get into your zone immediately. Avoid all outside contact. Um, And once you do that, the third thing, get Find your comfort zone and rhythm. Once you've done that, then you try to maintain small oscillations and accelerations using your sensations. This is the art of varying the speed. The, uh, the other thing, uh, you know, use hydration stations. Uh, strategically use them, you know, basically, basically to decrease your temperature and rinse your mouth. And the last thing, don't worry about the kilometers or miles you have run because nothing matters behind you. The only thing that matters is the kilometers or miles that's in front of you. And that's, those are her um, golden rules for marathon success. You know, something we go into at depth in the book. So. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great way to, to, to finish off with that. And it actually highlights for me why treadmill running, I think gives you such a different sensation and this like, drive to get off because you almost eliminate your opportunity for any variability. And when you do introduce it, you have to reach up and press a button. So you actually have to consciously do it versus just following it. Look what you described is kind of intuitively 
pushing the gas pedal when it feels right and then laying off and getting into that kind of that, that comfortable zone that you know is right um, and sustainable. But uh, this, has been, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking some time out to come on. Zach, you're very generous for having me on and um, I can't thank you enough and uh, we'll look forward to doing it again. Perfect. Take care. Have a good rest of the day. Thanks, Zach. You too. Bye-bye. Hey folks, if you enjoy HPO and like to work out through running, I would love for you to join me for some virtual educational and training opportunities. I will be leading a VO2 max interval session on Saturday, November 21st. You can sign up to participate or watch and learn at sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash stadium. In partnership with this event, S-Fuels is also offering a buy one, get one free sale on all their protein bars leading up to the event. Simply head to their store at sfuelsgolonger.com and enter the promo code ZACHB241, all capital letters, that is Z-A-C-H-B, the number two, F-O-R, the number one, to get half off two packs of one of my favorite products in their lineup, the Protein Life Bars. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.